Well, it seems like it would be wrong for me on the 4th of July not to say that I'm grateful for our nation, grateful to be a United States citizen. Uh, this is the only home that I have known. I'm very grateful for this nation. I uh, also have to recognize, as we think about our nation, that it is an imperfect nation, a nation that I pray for often, often with tears. Uh, we've seen all kinds of injustice in our nation. We see all kinds of ways in which uh, we inadvertently and overtly have sinned against our Creator God, and one day uh, we'll be held account. Uh, but my hope is that this nation flourishes. I, I pray to that end, uh, that we would be a place where uh, we flourish in all the ways that God created humanity to flourish. But here's the deal. I know that what I would understand to be a flourishing reality ought to look completely different according to what I read in the scriptures to what this world would account as flourishing. And we're going to see that this morning as Jesus comes and preaches. We're going to be starting a series on the Beatitudes this morning. This is what we're doing. And as we do, Jesus opens up this sermon and he casts our eyes towards another kingdom. Now, you know, as Christians, we have dual citizenship, right? All of us. I'm not just talking about you guys who are like visiting. Uh, I'm talking about if you're a Christian, your citizenship is in the United States, but it's also in heaven. And that heavenly citizenship is the citizenship that matters more than any earthly citizenship. In other words, there is a day that's coming when all nations will give way to the great kingdom of God. And it's there that we're going to experience the perfect justice that we long for. But until that day, Jesus gives us an image, he gives us a sermon, and he begins this sermon talking to us about what it looks like to have a flourishing life this side of heaven. It is an interesting picture. It is a picture of a kind of upside-down kingdom where things don't quite appear as what you would expect them to appear. Well, we're going to see this as we go through this new series on the Beatitudes, Happy Life, a series for the tired, the cynical, and the dissatisfied. And I'm sure uh, most, if not all of us, could fit into at least one of these. I mean, we did just come out of the pandemic, right? We're still kind of in it, I think. Maybe it's starting again. We don't know. That's why we're so cynical and tired and maybe dissatisfied. But what we want to do in this moment is hear from Christ about how our hearts should be at work as we long for and await that great kingdom of heaven that is to come. Now, Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew with this Sermon on the Mount that goes from chapters 5 to 7. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five discourses that are the major sort of breaks in the book of Matthew. You can actually read this sermon, chapters 5 to 7, in 10 minutes, which leads me to think that this is actually more of a kind of uh, bullet-pointed list of major points of the sermon. Uh, I'm guessing they didn't trek out into, uh, onto this mountain to hear a sermon for 10 minutes and then, like, you know, sort of leave. I think, I think they probably had a lot of teaching on each one of these points. But as we look at this, you'll notice that this sermon begins with a, a kind of rapid-fire list of Beatitudes that are marked by blessed are the, and we'll begin with poor in the Spirit this morning, and he goes on and on. And they're giving and painting this picture of a happy life in the kingdom of God, what it looks like this side of heaven. Now you'll notice that each verse begins with blessed are the, and so uh, when you come to the Beatitudes, you might be looking at these and think to yourself, uh, these are the attitudes that I need to be being if I'm going to get blessings. Like, why are they called the Beatitudes? Well, the Beatitudes actually, that's not, these aren't the Beatitudes. Instead, uh, this comes from a Latin word, beatus, which means uh, uh, someone who is happy, someone who is uh, in delight or blissful. Uh, it's the translation of that Greek word that you'll find behind blessing in your New Testament, makurios. And see, Jesus begins here teaching with an astonishing authority about how to live a happy life according to the kingdom of heaven. It is unlike the kingdoms of this earth. So let me make a few clarifications as we begin this series. First, as we talk about the happy life, we are not talking about a kind of trite, momentary, fleeting experience that you might have when you have a really good burrito. We're talking about a kind of happiness that comes deep to our souls and works out 
The, the kind of uh, sort of experience that might be encapsulated in the, the Hebrew word shalom. It's a sense of peace and wholeness. Now, we believe that Jesus has made us to be happy with him, to have a life that is flourishing. Second, you'll notice that Jesus is going to offer a different definition of a happy life that will challenge all of the metrics of this world. It will turn them upside down on their heads. Even this morning, you probably noticed that when we read the first beatitude, blessed or happy and flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There really is a kind of paradox to the way the, the kingdom of heaven describes a happy life. So we hope this sermon causes all of us to really reevaluate. Are you hearing me? All of us, as we come to Christ, need to reevaluate the way that we are thinking about what a happy life is this side of Christ coming back. All of us, I believe, likely have ways in which we are determining whether or not we are happy based on wrong metrics, and we need Jesus to come in and to show us how it is that we are to view the world and others and evaluate true flourishing this side of Christ's return. Now, maybe you are in a better or a worse place than you knew when you come to this. But third, I, I just want to say out from the onset that I'm really indebted to Jonathan Pennington's work in the Sermon on the Mount and human flourishing. Uh, his work has really helped me uh, understand, I think, the language that's being used here for the Beatitudes. And he says that that these Beatitudes are pointing towards a, a flourishing-oriented eschatological wisdom exhortation. And some of you are like, I just got lost. Don't worry, I'll catch you up. But the point is, is that they are futuristic and they speak to the way that we should live in the here and now. So first, our big idea is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. Kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are in, uh, poor in spirit. Uh, notice first in verse 1, he, uh, we see... Uh, Jesus speaking to his audience. And so as I go through, what I really want to do is, is just have some questions and answers to help us understand where we are in this text. Uh, the first couple of questions we want to answer is this. Where is Jesus and who is his audience? Like, where is he and, and who's he speaking to? I think that's important. Now, you'll notice in verse 1, it says that seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain and then he sat down and his disciples came to him. Now, Jesus is on a mountain. That's where he is. I, I've been, actually, to the, the Mount of Beatitudes in Israel. I visited the visitor center. Uh, they had some overpriced pots and stuff. I passed. But we really can't be sure where this mountain is exactly. We've guessed, but we don't know. Now, we may not be sure about the geography of this mountain, but it's hard to miss the theology of it. I mean, sure, practically, there's a purpose for it, right? I mean, he's, he's got crowds around him, and he wants for all of them to be able to hear him. He's trying to get away to make sure his disciples particularly hear him. And so he goes up on this mountain, which is kind of like an amphitheater. But if you think about the history of mountains, we know that high places were often where gods would reveal themselves to humanity. And so here we find that that Jesus Christ is speaking from this high place, this mountain. In fact, if you read through Matthew, this is one of seven mountains in the book of Matthew. And these all are revealing the authority of King Jesus. I mean, you can't miss this at the very end of the book of Matthew. Chapter 28, the disciples come to Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, and he's on what? A mountain. And he begins by saying that he is speaking with what? All authority in heaven and on earth. He's not speaking like your typical rabbi. This is one who speaks with astonishing authority from beginning to end. Now, if you pan out, you'll remember that this isn't the only place in the Bible where we see important mountains. Uh, you'll remember Moses, who received the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. And it's there that God delivered uh, what it was that he was requiring man to live by. And here, Jesus also looks like the one greater than Moses, who doesn't merely give the law, but fulfills the law. He is the one who has come to lead a new and greater exodus than what Moses led. He is the one who has come to usher in a new and greater kingdom. And he speaks with an unprecedented, astonishing authority that is greater than even Moses. 
Now, this dovetails nicely with who Jesus is speaking to. See, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and the crowds. The disciples and the crowds. Now, I know when you look at verse 1, it looks like he's trying to escape the crowds, and I'm not saying he's not, but it seems almost like they leave the crowds behind and it's just the disciples. Those Jewish disciples, the 12 disciples. But if you flip to the very end of the sermon, chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, you can look there, and it's really clear that it's not just the disciples, because Matthew notes, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The crowds. The crowds is distinguished from the disciples. It says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. See, the group of pre-Pentecost disciples. This is before they had the Holy Spirit that's come at Pentecost in Acts 2, right? This disciple group likely included more than just the 12 Jewish disciples at this point. And in addition, we find crowds of Gentiles from the Decapolis. They are crowded around this mountain to hear from Jesus. And I love the difference between this picture and the picture of Moses at Sinai. Do you see it? You'll remember in Exodus, whenever Moses is going to Sinai, it is a terrifying picture. You find Moses coming with all of this smoke and fire and earthquakes. And, and, Jesus, and God there warns not uh, for anybody to break through to come into his presence, because if he does, they will be consumed. Stay back. But catch this. Jesus here, speaking on this mountain, comes to teach and shape those who are following him, but also to invite an onlooking world to enter God's kingdom through God's king. And this is a time of mercy and grace. And still today, as we are going through these Beatitudes, I want us to be reminded that if you are a Christian, Jesus still wants to bring you joy and conviction through his words. He's speaking to his children, but he's not just speaking to his children and roping it off and saying, no one else is welcome to come and hear. No, he's, he's actually speaking to you who are far from God. And he's saying, this is what God's kingdom is like. It's different than the kingdoms of this earth. Come and see the goodness of your God. And you can only see this in the face of God's king, King Jesus, who is continually inviting you to leave the crowd of this world that is destined for destruction and come to the good king who offers eternal life and a kingdom where all things are set right for your good and for his glory. Isn't that the kingdom you want to be in? The answer is yes. There is no better kingdom. Here what we find is, is that you have that invitation still today. So if you've been living for a kingdom in which you have found yourself all too easily satisfied with bleeding happiness, on one hand, or, or maybe on the other, tired, cynical, and dissatisfied, Jesus has come for you. But here's the question. Second, what is a beatitude? What's a beatitude? Well, the beatitudes are typically understand in, in a couple of ways, okay? So some explain beatitudes as a divinely initiated blessing. So when it says blessed, you're thinking blessed by who? Well, it's speaking of God. Well, the other is an explanation that means that a, a beatitude is a state of flourishing or happiness. Now these two are, are not different realities that are, are completely separate, but, but they do have different focuses that we want to look at. So we need to look at the language to understand how to interpret this. So beatitude, as I said before, it comes from uh, a word that is a Latin translation of the Greek makurios. That's what you find behind your New Testament word blessed. Now, that's why academics, when they talk about these, they call them the macarisms. Now, some of you are like, I get really lost in languages. So let me give you a modern equivalent. If you're old enough to dance in the 90s, anybody here old enough to dance in the 90s? Like, is it okay to admit that at church? Yes, it is. Do you remember the song La Macarena? Some of you are like, yeah, I remember the dance. I could do it right now if you asked me. Well, La Macarena is a word that actually is Spanish for happy. It comes from the same root that we find this word blessed, macarism. And so anyone who remembers this dance, the Macarena, this, this song is really actually a good illustration of what we are not talking about. 
See, this song is, is, is actually not a good picture of biblical happiness. In fact, it's actually about a woman who's te- cheating on her boyfriend who's going off to war with other guys. That's a worldly picture of happiness. In fact, she's almost kind of like a parable for happiness according to the kingdoms of this world rather than the kingdom of God. Sort of like a character from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where all the names mean something. But here we see in the Beatitudes and elsewhere in Matthew a number of of Beatitudes. They're not just here in, in our text. In fact, if you continue reading and you get to Matthew eleven six, you'll notice that Jesus there again says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, Jesus. That's another beatitude. Uh, beatitudes are elsewhere in the Bible. You'll see them in the Old Testament. For instance, the famed Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Another beatitude. Now, here's where Jonathan Pennington, I think, has helped me untangle this. What's going on? Is it divine blessing or is it human flourishing? Well, this word that is behind it uh, is usually, as I said before, uh, translated either blessed or happy. Now, blessed in the Old Testament comes from the word Baruch, which is a divine blessing. It carries this idea of divine favor. Happy is a rough equivalent of the Hebrew word Ashrei, which means to be in a state of flourishing or shalom. It speaks of a holistic peace and happiness. So blessing and flourishing, they are related ideas, but I think it's important at the onset to understand what exactly Jesus is saying. And the Bible never speaks of someone flourishing without God's blessing, yet they are distinct realities. In fact, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, Ashrei is always translated for Mercurios, which means flourishing or happy. Now, you're like, that's a lot that you just said. What are you talking about? What I'm arguing here is that I believe that as you read the Beatitudes, what Jesus is giving you a picture of is what a life of human flourishing looks like in the kingdom of heaven until Jesus comes back. This was what it looks like to live a happy life according to God. See, these are happier, flourishing uh, 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 sort of uh, another way to say this, these Beatitudes would be happier, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me give you an illustration to help. Uh, I have a friend who uh, is just a real encouragement, and uh, you might have been encouraged by this guy as well, but he always uses this phrase, hey, I just want you to know you're in a good place. And do you know how helpful that is sometimes? Have you ever felt like you were in a bad place? Like in the sense that You know you're being faithful to God, you're seeking Him, you're praying Him, you're being faithful to His people, you're faithful at work, faithful with your your family, but it feels like something must be broken, right? You you feel like, man, am I in the wrong place in somewhere? And maybe there's something I need to be repentant of. I just don't know what it is. I would repent if I knew. And sometimes it's good just to have a voice of sanity to say, hey, the world is broken. You're in a good place. Keep being faithful. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is wanting to do for his people. Let me tell you what it looks like to be in a good place spiritually as those who are truly members of the kingdom of heaven. And so here, King Jesus, following him, he lets you know at the onset, it may feel wrong according to worldly standards, but remember the standards of God. You're in a good place reminds people not to run from faithfulness, even when it looks like a bad place, according to the world's opinions. Now, here's why this matters. Jesus is launching his public ministry with a clear view of what true, God-centered, human flourishing looks like. Jesus is not impressed by the outward, worldly metrics that people often use to make judgments about what looks like being in a good place. He does not say that you're in a good place if you are the right ethnicity, or if you are someone of good status, or good socioeconomic conditions, or you have a ton of Facebook likes. That is not the way that we determine whether or not you are in a good place. But instead, he drills down on the heart of his people. See, Jesus looks for a wholehearted devotion from the inner person. That's what he desires. The the kingdom of heaven does not look like the kingdoms of this world. Now, Beatitudes, they work a lot like the Proverbs or Psalms 1. 
It's there that we are described what it looks like to live a wise way of life compared to a wicked way of life. It's like, hey, you got two choices. Are you going to live the way of wisdom or the way of the fool or the wicked? Now, I, I love the image in Psalm 1 because it really does bring to bear the idea of flourishing into this. Uh, you'll remember there that, again, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. What is he like? He is like a flourishing, fruitful tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf, it doesn't wither. It's never short of water. It's never short of life. It's never short of joy or peace. The wicked are not so. I don't know about you and what you want from your life. I don't know what you, what you want it to look like. Maybe, you know, you think, man, I would love just to be a, a dead, dry, cut-down tree ready for the fire. I don't think so. I think if you're like me, you, you want to flourish. You want to be fruitful. You know that God created you for more than just yourself. You've been made to be a blessing to others. And that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to in his Beatitudes, to be fruitful trees. In other words, the Beatitudes are really an invitation to live in a certain way that comes with a promise. But you can see how Jesus' Beatitudes conflicted with every other model of human flourishing of his day. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the ancient Near East and the kind of people that Jesus was preaching to, but we know that he was preaching to Jews. Jews who had this hope that a, a king would come and restore their what? Fortunes. That, that they would become powerful again, that they would no longer be weak and abysmal, but that they would be strong and glorious. They longed for a king to come and do that. But they had kind of devolved in their waiting into thinking, well, maybe that was just like a spiritualization that we should be looking at, and, and maybe we should just understand that we're in a good place if we have money and health. And people that don't have money and health and wisdom, they're in a bad place. Well, that looks a lot like the wisdom of the world that was going in the day. Catch this. People were not just like Gentiles, people that were non-Jews. They were not just all like hedonists. There were some hedonists that just lived for pleasure. Like that was a flourishing life. Get as much as you can while you can, eat, drink, and be merry. But you had others. You had others who came in like the Epicureans and said, you know, you need some moderation there. If you keep like pursuing pleasure without any kind of balance, you're going to kill yourself. And so they said, look, let's Let's take into account pain and, and have moderation and balance and how it affects others. And then you had uh, other philosophies of the day that were coming around to connect, like the Stoics who said, no, it's not just about pleasure. What you really need to do if you want to live a flourishing, meaningful life is to pursue virtue. Be a good person. That's where meaning in life is found. And then, of course, you had corrections like Aristotle who said, well, there's one supreme kind of virtue that you need to pursue, wisdom. You need to become a philosopher. If you have that kind of reality, then you will live a meaningful life. Did you notice what's common to all of those? Human, human flourishing meant more, more pleasure. More pleasure than pain, more virtue, more wisdom, more money, more health, more. But Jesus says a happy life begins with being poor in spirit. It is a recognition of spiritual poverty that is the first step into the kingdom of heaven. It is completely unlike the kingdoms of this world. Now notice third, he says, who are the poor in spirit? Uh, he says they are, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus says you are in a good place if you are what? Poor in spirit. That is what a flourishing life looks like according to his kingdom. But what is poor in spirit? You know, this is really the only time we see this phrase in the New Testament. And, and often people, as they look at this, are asking another question. How does poor in spirit here, how does it relate to Luke 6 and his list of Beatitudes? Because he only gives four along with four woes. And he doesn't mention poor in spirit, but, but instead is just talking about the physically poor. And so are they the same? Are they different? Are they related? 
Well, for this reason, some have said that Luke looked at Matthew's list and radicalized it, or Matthew looked at Luke's list and spiritualized it. But I believe that if you look at these two different contexts, and I believe these are two different times and sermons myself, that there is overlap and distinction between the physically poor and the poor in spirit. And I think it's completely relevant for us understanding what Jesus is saying here today. Now you'll notice that both Luke and Matthew use the same word for poor, which speaks of those who are abysmally poor, the abject poverty of this world. Uh, This word, it's it's a word that gives this idea of someone who is cowering, cringing, or begging. Now when I was in school, we had a a number of people who used to make your mama jokes. Do you all remember those? We had a whole series of your mama so poor jokes. Your mama so poor, she went to McDonald's and had to put a milkshake on layaway. Y'all can think about that. It's kind of sad to put a milkshake on layaway because it, you know, it gets like nasty, but anyway. You have to explain the joke, it's not funny, right? I think laughter, though, can actually mask our pain. You know, sometimes we we make a joke out of being poor, and some of those who are making the best jokes about being poor are those who know what it is to be poor and the pain behind it. Not all of us, but many of us don't know what it's like to live in poverty, though, with no money, no food, no medicine, no parents, no safety net provided by parents. It is a desperate, vulnerable place to be desperately poor, devastatingly destitute. See, the physically poor can have an inside track, I believe, on understanding dependence on God. When my boys used to fish with their grandpa. Now he'd tell them this story about this poor woman who would come out in her boat. She didn't have the nicest boat or the nicest equipment, but she always caught the most and the best fish. And it, it was really kind of a, a beautiful thing. She'd come out early in the morning. She'd start crying out, oh, please, Lord Jesus, give me some fish. Jesus, please don't let us go hungry. And she did that every day and every, every time she went out to, to fish, at least more times than not, She would come home with just a haul because she knew what it meant to be dependent on Jesus for her daily bread. And onlookers really believed that Jesus was giving her those fish. But I think Matthew here has the spiritually poor in mind. In fact, I think that what he's doing is he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, as he's drawing from an Old Testament text in Isaiah 61 where the prophet is prophesying And and it's there that Isaiah, he foresees a coming anointed conqueror who is going to come and reverse the fortunes of his people and to usher in a new day and a new creation. And he goes on to say in Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. See, clearly Matthew has this in mind. In fact, in Matthew 4.23, Jesus comes to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And then later in in chapter 11, John the Baptist is asking, are you the one that we've been waiting for? And and Jesus' response in chapter 11 is, go and tell John the Baptist this, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead hear, the death hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. You hear it? That day that Isaiah saw that he promised us was coming is here. Jesus is the great reversal that Isaiah 61 heralded. He has arrived. See, it's the poor in spirit, not the rich in self-sufficiency that are in a good place. It's those who are poor in spirit that are positioned well before God. Not those who are boasting of their self-sufficiency their lack of need. In fact, there might be those here today who as you hear the gospel, you are almost immune to it because you have no idea of your neediness for it. You you think to yourself, you you come in before you even hear a thing from the preacher or from other Christians in the room. You you say, I'm I'm not that bad. I'm actually pretty successful at all the things we do. It seems like me and God are okay. I don't feel like I'm in a bad place. And yet, you're so far from God because you don't understand just how needy you are. 
love what Ambrose said of this text. He says, this beatitude, poor in spirit, it's not only the first in order, but it is also the one that in some way generates all the other virtues that he speaks about in these beatitudes. In the same way that the first commandment, you remember, you shall have no other gods before me, it's kind of the first and foundational. It's also the fountain of all the rest. Anything else that you fail to do has failed to misunderstand step one, have no other gods. If I'm God, everything else changes. Every one of us must understand our neediness and helplessness. Isaiah 64, 6 says, our most righteous deeds are what? Filthy rags. And I could get into that, but just know that it's really gross. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, that's, that's desperate. Are you hearing what he's saying? It's not just that you can't trust others. You can't trust your own heart. Or what about... Romans 3, 11 to 12, where Paul quotes Psalm 14. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together, catch this, they have become worthless. Now, who is Paul speaking of there? Well, he's speaking of everybody. Everybody left to themselves worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, here's how needy we are. You can't help yourself because you were dead in your uh, trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Worthless. We were dead. We can't trust our own hearts. We're not in a good place left to ourselves. Do we see that? That is the word that we hear from God throughout the pages of Scripture. Left to yourselves, you are destined for God's wrath. You are hopeless. You are helpless. The good news comes to those who understand their spiritual poverty before God. Do you get that? You're not ready for the good news until you understand the bad news about yourself and everything around you. Do you see your spiritual poverty before God? See, God created every human with inestimable value and worth. He created us in Genesis 1 after his image and likeness. He created every one of us that we might have dominion over the earth. We were meant to be regal in the eyes of God, reflecting his glorious character, all of creation. But we sinned. And here's the, 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 the sad exchange that we made in that sin that we did not know was coming. Rather than getting more like Satan promised, we received worthlessness, helplessness, and we became desperately needy for God's grace and God's grace alone. See, John Calvin says the poor in spirit are those who see nothing in themselves, but fly to mercy for sanctuary. Have you flown to mercy for sanctuary? If you, if you made that flight, it is the most important journey you'll ever make. We are spiritual beggars, according to the scriptures. We have a debt that we cannot pay. As D.T. Niles famously quipped, Christianity is really just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Jesus is the bread of life. We don't make our own bread. There's no other store to go to get bread. If we don't get bread from Jesus, we starve and we die. We eat it. We enjoy it. We distribute it to those who are hungry. But like Israel in the desert, we wake up every morning and go back to Jesus for more bread that keeps us alive. Now let me apply this, this idea of spiritual poverty to four different groups. And please hear me, I, I don't ever break up the congregation into poor and rich, save poor and save rich, not save poor, not save rich. But I believe that as I look at Luke and Matthew that, that there needs to be some heart work done. I, I want to kind of get in each of our skins and think through how we should be thinking about poverty 
of spirit. So you can be financially rich or poor and poor in spirit. Did did y'all hear me? You, You can be financially rich or poor and poor in spirit. That's one. Also, you can be financially poor and either poor in spirit or not. Like, both of those realities work. It'll become hopefully clear as we we move through. But you can be financially rich or poor and rich in self-sufficiency and not have the poorness in spirit that Jesus calls for. So we're going to look at each one of these first. The physically poor who are not poor in spirit. See, poverty should be an advantage according to God's economy. Did you see that? There's a real sense in which those who do not have many material blessings have sort of a, a shorter line to experiencing desperate need for what God can provide. Now, this verse doesn't say the financially poor are automatically favored by God. That's not what it's saying. Some have looked at this and said that. That, That's not what Jesus is saying. See, some are poor because they are lazy, according to the Scriptures. You remember in Proverbs? Consider the ant, O sluggard, and what? Learn some stuff about working. Like, don't be lazy. And then Paul tells Timothy, an able-bodied man who doesn't provide for his family— has abandoned the faith. Now, here's why I think that's important. Paul is telling Timothy, catch this, you might think that maybe there's some who have like hyper-spiritualized Christianity to the point that they think, oh, I don't have to work, I don't have to get a job, I don't have to provide for a family. And he says, no, you've like actually missed the faith if that's your doctrine. See, some are poor for good reasons, like being born in generational poverty, a bad break or sickness. All kinds of reasons can make you put in the good effort and yet end up poor. But to be honest with you, most of us don't fit into this group compared to the rest of the world. Just a a reminder, I was reading an article in the Washington Post that said that they looked at like the global median individual income per year. You know what it was? $2,100. So apparently compared to the rest of the world, if you're making more than $2,100, you're doing well. I don't know if the math works out that way, but you get it. We are rich compared to many, but many of us can feel poor because we live in a consumer culture that says joy and identity are tied to our possessions. If I do not have the right phone, if I do not have the right shoes or the right car, if I don't go to the right club, then I'm an outsider. So if you feel poor financially, this text isn't saying that you are automatically poor in spirit. You you can be financially poor and rich in self-sufficiency. Let me just ask you like some hard questions. Could it be that you've used your poverty as an excuse not to trust God? What if God has left you in poverty so that you might find him? What a mercy of God if you should lose everything and yet gain Christ. Are you still so self-sufficient that you will not seek him? And what if you did gain the whole world and didn't have Christ? You know, the, the gospel of the kingdom, it is for you. But it begins with saying that you need to be reconciled to God through his King Jesus who died for you. You needed Jesus and you need to repent and believe. The future is incredibly bright, but know that today you need to find Christ. But what about the physically poor who are poor in spirit? You know, the world might look down on you and say that you are worthless. Christian brothers and sisters, maybe some of you today feel like you don't have much and you feel like a failure. You feel like people look at you as unimportant or a failure because of the possessions that you have. But remember 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. God did not choose many noble or wise according to worldly standards. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human boast in the presence of God. And let me just encourage you this morning to know that there is nothing that really defines your worth more than your relationship to Christ and how God sees you in the eyes of Christ. So often we attempt to hide our weaknesses and fail to ask for help when we need it because we want people to think more of us based on worldly standards. So many Americans live paycheck to paycheck and look wealthy on the outside. Well, here are these two things. First, our church doesn't believe that God's love for you or your worth is measured by your earthly possessions. You are loved by God. 
God gave his son for you. He gave the most valuable thing in the universe for you. That's the value that you have before God. That's the value that you have as part of the family of God. You don't need to keep up with the Joneses. See, God loves each one of us because of Christ's work, not our own. And that is grounded in Christ's work on our behalf. See, when you go to the cross, I know it might be on a hill like the hill of Calvary, but, but it is absolutely level for all of us. We all equally needed Jesus on a cross. And second, contentment begins, for those of us who don't have much, with cultivating a sense of being poor in spirit. See, Paul learned to be content in times of plenty and times of want. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I'm there with you. I want to be content with what I have. I want to trust and pray for more, but trust, trust God with where I'm at. What do I do? How do I cultivate this? Well, here's how Paul did it in Philippians. He understood himself to be the chief of sinners. Do you see the math there? That is poor in spirit. He does not elevate himself and say, I'm not as bad as the rest of guys, but I don't have more. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. Everything from here out is gravy. I didn't deserve any of it. See, Paul learned to be content in times of plenty and want by understanding who he was before Christ and his desperate need. See, sometimes we, 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 we think that we deserve more or need more because we don't see how much we've been given in Christ. See, he understood his spiritual bankruptcy before God and it taught him contentment when he was rich and poor. What about the physically rich who are poor in spirit? Be careful not to allow your riches to insulate you from your sense of being poor in spirit. Riches can do that. They can be protective against sensing that you are needy, that you are desperate. It, It can make us think that we are safe in ways that we are not. Because in God's economy, spiritual wealth or material wealth actually, catch this, puts us at a disadvantage. Did you, did you see that? Spiritual, like, sort of poverty is a good thing. Material wealth can actually be to our detriment. Doesn't mean that it's a bad thing to be successful or to have money, but it can be a dangerous thing for our soul. See, I, I don't think Notorious B.I.G. really understood the truth of his statement, mo money, mo problems. He didn't understand the half of it. If you love God, there are all kinds of other problems that creep into your heart because of material wealth pulling you towards this world rather than towards the, heaven, the, the kingdom of God in heaven. See, arrogance can grow swiftly in the soil of wealth. God warned the church of Laodicea of the dangers of wealth in Revelation 3.17. Do you remember that? It's there that the angel says, for you say, I am rich, those in this church. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Do you see what's happened there? Material wealth, prosperity, has begun to have a spiritual impact on them such that they no longer see their need before God. So if you think that material things don't have any kind of spiritual pull, read Revelation 3.17. He says, you're not realizing in your thoughts that you have need of nothing, that you're actually from God's perspective, a spiritual perspective, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, faith helps us see that earthly riches, they are a quickly depreciating commodity. They are, what, passing away forever. And they are giving way to an eternal kingdom. And that's why Jesus says later in the sermon, you need to build up treasures in heaven because this stuff's going away. You don't want to find yourself bankrupt in heaven. Not that that's a thing. We'll talk about it later. But guard your heart against trusting in your possessions and losing sight of your spiritual neediness. I love the statement by Lady Huntington who was writing to the late great pastor John Wesley. And she was thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 that says, not many noble are called. And she said, I'm going to heaven through the letter M. Why? Well, how grateful I am that Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, did not say, not any noble are called, but rather not many with an M noble are called. And that was her way of saying, I'm getting through by the hair of my chinny chin chin, a godly saint 
who is generous all of her days. Don't let earthly riches obstruct your neediness, your view of your neediness now, and the value of the throne that awaits. The stuff here, don't get satisfied. The best is yet to come. It's an unperishable, undefiled, eternal kingdom. So if the Lord's blessed you, be generous. Be generous is an expression of the fact that I am not clinging to these things. Spend a lot of time in God's word and with God's people and in prayer, reminding yourself of your neediness before God. But what about the physically rich who are not poor in spirit? You know, this wealth can make you blind your own spiritual poverty. It can make it difficult to feel your need for resources that only Jesus can provide. Now, I'm not saying, please hear me, as a pastor, that you need to go sell all that you have to follow Jesus. But Jesus did once face a rich young man who was really righteous in Matthew 19, and he told him to do just that. So he asked what else he needed to have eternal life, this rich young man did. And Jesus told him, sell all you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, let me just say this. If the physical Jesus ever comes before you and tells you face to face to sell all you have and come follow him, and you don't do that, you're dumb. Like Jesus, you, you do what Jesus says, right? That was given specifically to him. But in Matthew 19, 22, when the young man heard this, it says that he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. This young man insulated himself with his own righteousness. I've kept all the commandments since I was a child. I'm really good. And his own riches. And he did not see his spiritual poverty when he was confronted with Jesus Christ face to face. He had the whole world, but lacked this one thing, Jesus, and therefore he had nothing in the kingdom of heaven. Is that you? Your riches, obscuring your view of Jesus, making you feel safe, they can't rescue you from death. They can't rescue you from the wrath that awaits. So what do you need to do? You need to repent and believe in Christ. See, here's the, the, the formula that helps you grow in poverty of spirit. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that for you by his poverty might become rich. See, the eternal Son of God stooped to take on flesh, to live the perfect life of righteousness that we could not, to pay the debt that we could not, and he died on the cross for our sins to bring us peace with God. And he was raised from the dead to declare victory to those who put their faith in him. Everything that we receive spiritually, or material, is because of God's free gift to us of an imperishable, unfading kingdom that awaits those who are in Christ. And what is that kingdom? Well, notice he gives a promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk more about this in week eight. Uh, this is repeated in week eight. In fact, you'll notice that each beatitude is followed by a promise. The first and the eighth are actually a repeat of theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another difference is, is that everything in between, that sandwiched in between, is all in the future. But this says this is a present reality for those who are poor in spirit. R.T. France observes that the kingdom of heaven in this book actually functions virtually as a slogan for the whole scope of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew. See, the kingdom of heaven, it's highlighting how different the kingdom of God is from the kingdoms of this earth. See, the kingdom of God is better. That's why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for this kingdom in heaven to come and to be fully amongst us on earth. And then give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Don't miss this. I take it that the present tense here teaches that there is an already not yet reality of the kingdom for true believers. There is a sense in which those in Christ are already citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know some think that there's going to be a, a thousand year literal reign on earth and some think that all that we're waiting is a new heavens or a new earth. But here's one thing that I can say. If Jesus is king, he is king of your life today. Now, we are already citizens of heaven, but not yet fully what we shall be when Jesus returns. Jesus' current reign over us 
is over those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as God's king. In fact, Matthew's gospel uniquely focuses his gospel on the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he talks about, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, you might be thinking, why is he talking about the gospel of the kingdom? Well, if you read the Old Testament, you'll understand more. See, in in the Old Testament, what we find is, is that the Jews understood that Adam and Eve, they lived in a flourishing garden in the presence of God with unhindered relationship. It was glorious. That is what all of us ultimately were made for and longed for. That is why all of us, in some sense, even in Christ, are dissatisfied and longing for what is to come. Now, you can respond to that longing in sinful or godly ways. But Adam sinned, and he was cast out of the garden. And the rest of the Bible really is about how do we get back to shalom? How do we get back to Eden? How do we get back to where we work the way that we were supposed to? The world works the way that it was supposed to. The way that we have that freedom of uninhibited communication with God. We find throughout a number of covenants that God promises that he's going to work through a king. And in 2 Samuel 7, he says that king is going to come from the line of David. One day, he promises in 2 Samuel 7, there is a great Davidic king who is coming, and I am going to put my spirit on him, and he will reign over the nations forever. And we find out who that king is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. When Matthew is very careful to begin saying that this is the beginning of what? It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham. It is the genesis of the new creation that is breaking out. It begins with Jesus, who is God's king. He promised the king. The king has arrived. His name is Jesus. See, we've been trying to get back to that flourishing reality. And when Jesus shows up on that mountain, he says, the gates are open wide. New creation is breaking out. And it begins with how you approach God's king. And I am that king. See, one day God's kingdom will fully touch down on earth and all things will be on earth as they are in heaven. But until then, we know that we might look poor in the eyes of the world. But we are rich according to God's eyes, and those are the eyes that matter. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, we praise you that you have sent your Son. We praise you that uh, we are destined for a a future and better kingdom. Father, we praise you that we can trust that if we have put our faith in Christ, that we are already citizens of the kingdom that is coming. Lord, I pray that if there are those here today who their eyes have been obscured to the, the goodness of Jesus because of wealth, because of pride, Lord, that you would give them eyes to see the glories of Christ. That you would give them eyes to see that earthly riches do not compare with what he has for us. Father, for those who are poor, I pray that you would provide for their needs. I pray that you would bless and keep them. But Lord, I also ask that those who are poor outside of Christ, Father, that you would help them to see that Financial poverty is not nearly as bad as spiritual poverty and not knowing your son Christ and the salvation that they need and can only have in him. Help them to see not just their financial neediness, but their spiritual neediness. And Father, for all of us, help us to see Christ as king. There is none like him. No one speaks with his authority. It's his name we do pray. Amen.